everyone, and welcome to the first episode of Star Spangled Shadows, part of InnovativeHistory.com. My name is Bryant Holt, and I'll be your host as this podcast takes us through some of American history. And as you can probably guess by the name, more specifically, American history that lies in the shadows. My goal is to talk about things that you probably didn't read about in your high school textbook. Some of the episodes will be about amazing feats regarding U.S. history, while some will be blunders that have been left out of textbooks for a reason. Let's start the first episode with the latter. This episode revolves around swashbuckling pirates, underhanded deals and treaties, duels to the death, and a ship laden with explosives designed to be sailed directly into an enemy pirate fleet. If you watch Game of Thrones, then this may sound like a past episode, and you wouldn't really be wrong in thinking that. But all of this has to do with America's history. For the Game of Thrones fans out there, you'll recognize the idea of a fire ship as seen in the Game of Thrones episode titled Battle of the Blackwater from Season 6. The fire ship is a floating Trojan horse filled with explosives. The object of the ship is to maneuver as close as possible to enemy ships and then ignite, taking down as much of the enemy fleet as possible. If you aren't familiar with the concept from the popular HBO show, I'll briefly describe the scene. In the show, Tyrion Lannister and the infamous King Joffrey look out from their castle onto Blackwater Bay. Their enemy, Stannis Baratheon, and his massive fleet sailed toward them in the darkness. The King's Landing duo couldn't hope to take on Baratheon's navy head-to-head, at least not by conventional means. Their navy wouldn't have been strong enough. Instead, the scene ensues and a single ship floats out from the harbor to take on the massive enemy fleet. King Joffrey, as he does, whines to his uncle, Tyrion, saying, Where are the rest of them? Where are the rest of the ships? Steadfast, Tyrion ignores his nephew's whiny outburst and watches as the ship moves forward into the pitch black. The sailors of the Baratheon fleet arm their bows and wait and wonder as the lone ship approaches. They finally notice that the ship is unmanned. A rope has been tied to its steering wheel to keep its course, and something is flooding from the inside of the ship, leaving a green trail of liquid in its wake. If you don't know, this green liquid is called wildfire. Imagine the explosiveness of napalm as you envision the liquid. That being said, Tyrion, back at the castle, raises a torch and an archer shoots a flaming arrow into the wake of the ship, which immediately ignites the escaping wildfire, and the ship then explodes into a giant green fireball taking down all of the ships within a few hundred yards almost immediately. The ships outside of this range are then rained down upon with green fiery shards of the hull, rigging, and masts of burning ships. King Joffrey and his uncle Tyrion are ultimately able to defeat the much larger navy thanks to this fire ship maneuver. No surprise, this scene comes from a fantasy series like Game of Thrones. However, believe it or not, George R. R. Martin and HBO didn't invent this scene from thin air. In fact, there's a good chance this idea actually came from the U.S. Navy, who once had its own fire ship, or floating volcano as they called it, in their playbook. It ended up being a complete disaster, which is probably why this incident is hardly ever discussed in our history textbooks. Here's the story. The story of the USS Intrepid, America's fire ship, dates all the way back to the American Revolution. As you may know, it was Benjamin Franklin who helped convince the French to assist the United States in the revolution against Great Britain. On February 6, 1778, he was in France signing the Treaty of Alliance. This treaty basically said that France would recognize the United States as a country 
and would assist them against Great Britain if Great Britain were to declare war on France. As soon as Great Britain heard that France recognized its American colonies as a country, it immediately declared war. So the Treaty of Alliance was more or less a self-fulfilling prophecy. However, the treaty also stated that France would protect the U.S. from common enemies besides just Great Britain. Some of these enemies that fell under this category were the swashbuckling Barbary Pirates of North Africa. These were a group of four city-states that sound more like a Pirates of the Caribbean series than they do real history. The states were Morocco, Tunis, Algiers, and Tripoli. All but Morocco basically owed some allegiance to the Ottoman Empire at the time. Oh, and one of my favorite pieces about the pirates. They had a tradition in which whenever they wanted to declare war on a nation, they would send someone over to that nation's embassy and literally chop down the flagpole with an axe. Talk about a statement. So why is this background info important? Well, it will all lead up to the first Barbary War, which is where the United States implemented its fireship offensive against the city-state of Tripoli. So background continued, even after the battles of the Revolutionary War ended, France still helped protect U.S. ships as they sailed to Europe to trade. These Barbary pirates, I mentioned, were infamous for capturing ships and enslaving the sailors or ransoming the crew back to their home country, for substantial sums. Not so different from how we envision Somalian pirates today, just to give you a reference point. The Barbary pirates were estimated to have captured and enslaved 1 to 1.5 million people over a few centuries. Yeah, that's, that's 1 to 1.5 million people. So Africa was importing slaves as slaves were also being exported from Africa. In fact, historical records show that the pirates raided towns and enslaved the populations of Europeans as far north as Ireland. Although the common term slaves is used to define the import and export of slaves in Africa, you really need to dive into both aspects separately to understand them. They don't necessarily correlate directly, as there were a lot of differences between the two institutions. Like, for example, Barbary slaves could still move up in society and own land or property, and were often even released if they converted to Islam. The Barbary pirates were essentially forbidden from owning Muslim slaves. In most cases, their safe passage home could also be bought with a ransom payment, whereas slaves exported from Africa were often forced to become Christians if they were imported into the New World, and so on and so on. But this whole story is for another episode. However, to understand the reach of this slavery problem for Europeans, you should know that there were organizations in Europe whose sole purpose was to fundraise and collect donations for pirate ransoms. Even more so, a lot of Europeans became angry as the African slave trade was being outlawed by European nations, but the citizens were complaining that the nations weren't doing enough to stop their own citizens from becoming slaves to the Barbary pirates. The only way to stop these pirates was to fight them off with force, pay off their ransom, or pay them a tribute to ensure they wouldn't attack your ships in the first place. So, the United States was protected by the French until 1783, and before that, they had been protected by the British, at least before the Revolutionary War started. So they never really had to deal with these pirates like other European nations did. However, after the Treaty of Paris was signed in 1783, which was the treaty that officially ended the hostilities of the American Revolution, the French no longer protected U.S. merchant ships. In fact, the French started attacking U.S. ships because America stopped paying its bills to France from the American Revolution. We like to talk about George Washington, the whole cherry tree incident. He's such an honest and upstanding citizen and founding father. But if you're familiar with the Quasi-War against France, after the American Revolution, 
you would know that George Washington basically started skipping out on the bills he owed to France for the loans they had given to help America in the American Revolution. The Quasi-War was basically an undeclared war where all the fighting took place on the sea, mostly with the French Navy attacking U.S. vessels. After the toppling of the French crown and the French Revolutionary Wars, old George and the United States sat back and told the new French regime that they no longer needed to repay those loans they had racked up during the Revolutionary War. Why? Because the debt they owed to France had been owed to a previous regime. I really hope another bank buys SunTrust Bank soon. That way I can cite the quasi-war with France as the reason why I would no longer keep paying that car loan I owed them. I'm sure there wouldn't be any issues. And as silly as that sounds, it's basically what the United States did. Even worse, they signed a new treaty with the British, even as the French and British were still at war with one another. Unsurprisingly, French outrage led to a series of attacks on American shipping. So with no more protection at sea, and perhaps even more enemies for the U.S. to worry about, the Barbary pirates started capturing and enslaving U.S. sailors as they went to and from Europe. The U.S. tried to combat this, but they just weren't strong enough especially in terms of naval forces. The U.S. had basically dropped its navy after the American Revolution. Instead, they had to pay tribute to the pirates to keep them away. Thomas Jefferson was paying the pirates almost 20% of the entire U.S. federal budget by the time he became president. To put that in perspective, that's more than the U.S. spends on its entire military today. But even this sum wasn't enough to satiate those pirates. I mean, after all, they're pirates. It's all about the booty. He decided enough was enough. He built a few massive ships to take on the pirates. And so the first Barbary War began in 1801. How bad were these pirates? Even Sweden, who currently has a long-standing policy of military neutrality, declared war on the pirates. In fact, the Swedes in the U.S. teamed up against the pirates in the first Barbary War. Fun fact, Sweden was the first nation not directly involved in the American Revolution to recognize the United States as an independent country. Yay, Sweden. So the war commenced. In a battle in Tripoli Harbor, one of Jefferson's massive ships that he built to take on the pirates, the USS Philadelphia, ran aground. Not knowing their enemy terrain very well, well, undersea terrain, the Philadelphia sailed right into a batch of submerged shallow shoals. Submerged shallow shoals. Try saying that three times fast. The sailors ditched whatever they could, but they couldn't get the ship back afloat. The entire crew and the ship were captured. If the Tripoli pirates were able to unground the Philadelphia, it would have been the largest ship in their entire fleet. Obviously, that would have been devastating to the United States. They knew they had to keep that from happening, so the U.S. put a plan together. After the Tripoli Harbor battle, the USS Enterprise, commanded by the U.S. Navy's golden boy, Stephen Decatur, who we'll talk more about momentarily, was able to capture one of the Tripolitan ships that had fought against them in Tripoli Harbor. This was the ship that the U.S. would eventually use as their fire ship. They renamed it Intrepid after successfully capturing it. Intrepid means feeling no fear, which is likely necessary if you're going to load a ship with explosives and sail it straight towards your enemy. The Tripolitan bomb catch was one of the few ships that the U.S. had successfully captured during the war. So now they had a ship that could pass as a Tripolitan merchant ship. They devised a plan to sail into the Tripoli Harbor and burned the USS Philadelphia so that it couldn't be used by the pirates. Now, Stephen Decatur decided to lead this mission himself. If you aren't familiar with Decatur, he happens to be one of the most famous figures in US Navy history. 
He helped supervise the building of many of the U.S. Navy vessels at the time, and he's the youngest person to ever reach the rank of captain in the American Navy. He's also a prime example of this whole proud, nationalistic American of the time. Not only was he a distinguished veteran, showing his loyalty and defeating British, French, and pirate ships, but he is remembered for his pride, too. He died in 1820, and after all those years fighting foreign navies, it was one of his own that put him in the grave. He died in a duel with a former American naval officer, James Barron, who was looking to get reinstated into the Navy after a forced leave. Decatur was on the Naval board and was working to keep Barron from reinstatement. Long story short, Barron challenged Decatur to a duel and ultimately killed him. This wasn't uncommon at the time, though. In fact, America was actually dealing with major problems regarding dueling. Duels between American naval officers were actually so commonplace that the United States was really struggling to keep enough officers on its payroll. The War Department had to go so far as to threaten any officers that participated in a duel with a discharge to try and sway them from fighting to the death. Now, I'm no war expert, but I imagine that anyone willing to gamble their life in a duel is probably also not that worried about gambling with a discharge from the Navy. But hey, what do I know? Anyways, about 15 years prior to his death, Decatur took over as the commander of the Intrepid Secret Mission. He and 60 men sailed straight into Tripoli Harbor with no real backup. When they were questioned by guards as to what they were doing, they said they had lost their anchors at sea and needed to dock for the night. More specifically, they asked if they could tie on to the USS Philadelphia. Because that didn't seem obvious or anything, a bunch of American-looking guys trying to tie onto a American ship that was stuck in the harbor and not trying to dock at an actual dock. So, of course, the guards raised the alarm after seeing the anchors were still attached to the ship. But the foolproof plan worked. Decatur and the sailors were able to make their way aboard the USS Philadelphia and to burn it to the ground. The Tripolitans began firing upon the ship, but the Americans were able to escape with very few casualties. My favorite part of the whole incident was that the USS Philadelphia remained loyal to America all the way to the end. As Philadelphia burned, its cannons were still loaded and the fire caused them to ignite and fire upon the Tripolitans as the US sailors escaped back to the Intrepid. So the Philadelphia did catch on fire and burn to the ground. Well, at least the water, I guess. But you've probably noticed that no ships have blown up yet in this episode, so you can probably guess how this all ends. After successfully using the Intrepid to destroy the USS Philadelphia, the US Navy started to get a tad greedy. They devised a plan to fill the Intrepid to the brim with explosives and set its course for the center of the Tripolitan fleet. The Navy gathered carpenters from all of its other ships and began to reconstruct the inside of the Intrepid so that they could fit as many explosives as possible in her hull. The Intrepid was loaded with around 100 barrels of powder and 150 shells. The fuses were set to give the sailors about 15 minutes to abandon ship. Stephen Decatur wisely sat this mission out, and a Lieutenant Richard Summers took the helm, and a handful of volunteers joined him. It would have taken somewhat of a crazy man to head up this mission, and from what we know about Summers, it seems he fit the bill perfectly. We mentioned the fact that Stephen Decatur died in a duel in 1820, in 1800, our guy Richard Summers supposedly fought three duels against three different opponents in the same day. Yes, the same day. 
This guy was wounded in both of the first two duels. Wounded so badly, in fact, that by the third duel, Summers couldn't even stand on his own. So Decatur himself had to hold Summers up so that he could finish his third duel. This guy was insane. Why was he fighting these three duels? Oh, well, because apparently, Decatur had made a joke about Summers, and three men called Summers a coward for not retaliating against the joke. Thank goodness Facebook and Twitter didn't exist back then, or the whole U.S. population would have gone down swinging. So we consider our Navy SEALs to be pretty gritty guys today, but these Navy gents of the early United States might have been just a bit too insane. Regardless, Summers took on the impossible mission, and he was joined by two of the U.S.'s fastest rowing ships to help the volunteers get back to safety after they ditched their floating Trojan horse. If only it were that simple. On September 4th, 1804, under the cover of darkness, Summers and the men sailed the Intrepid into the Tripoli Harbor towards their enemy. It was quickly recognized as the ship that had burned the USS Philadelphia and was bombarded by cannon fire. The Intrepid sealed its fate only 30 minutes into the mission, well before it was close enough to damage any of the enemy's ships. The only likely damage to Tripolitans was from ruptured eardrums after the booming explosion. The Intrepid was obliterated into thousands of pieces of wood, char, rigging, sails, and fireworks. To this day, the cause of the premature explosion is unknown, and no one wants to take the rap for a premature explosion. The explosives were possibly ignited by enemy gunfire, or Summers exploded the ship prematurely to keep it from being captured by enemy boarding parties. Regardless, all of the U.S. sailors on board were killed, and most likely killed instantly. So the aftermath. While the fire ship in Game of Thrones seems to have burnt most of its enemies to a crisp, the U.S. sailors' remains did not meet the same fate. After the explosion, the bodies of the men washed ashore. The angry Chipolitans dragged them through the streets, and after feeling like they had been on display long enough, they did eventually bury them in an unmarked grave. Over a century later, in 1949, Tripoli actually moved the remains to a local cemetery. Today, the U.S. has no intention of repatriating the remains, but U.S. officials do occasionally visit the site, but perhaps they don't want to revisit the actual decision that led to these men's deaths in the first place. So the attempt at the floating Trojan horse didn't work for the U.S. Navy, at least not in this example. While dueling and fire ships aren't a shining example of our military history, like any history, it's still worth knowing and bringing out of the shadows. The U.S. did eventually defeat the Barbary Pirates in the Second Barbary War. The First Barbary War ended after U.S. ships were forced to return to American oceans to prepare for the War of 1812. Thankfully, the pirates were just annoying enough that the British and U.S. made amends and teamed up against them in the Second Barbary War. This story may never, and perhaps shouldn't, make it into a young student's textbook, but now you know just a little more about America's history and perhaps where George R.R. R. Martin got his idea for a piece of Game of Thrones. Thank you for listening. Please drop by innovativehistory.com slash starspangledshadows and let me know what you think. You can also reach me at bryant, B-R-Y-A-N-T, at innovativehistory.com. Also, join me next time as we talk about one of America's earliest sports and whether or not it helped jumpstart the American Revolution. <laughs>